0: It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy.
1: Hey guys, it's your host, Brian Preston. I'm having to mute myself because Bo's already made me re-record this because he said I clipped everything out with my excitement. It's probably because... You guys all looked at the video. A lot of you looked at the video. If you go to money-guy.com, you gave us some great feedback. I even know a lot of you are even sharing it with your friends. We're going to send out. Uh, we have been sending out the coupons so that y'all can get that Money Guy swag at a discounted tightwad fashion. So good for you guys. Um, what we're going to be talking about today, and then I'll give the, the rest of the intro. We're going to be talking about how do you hold your assets. You're the only one that laughs at that. Uh, I know you Bo came up with that title, by the way. But what I think what I mean when I say how do you hold your assets is that we get a lot of questions. I think one of the things that we add a lot of value, and I think it's it's worth sharing with our listeners, is there are so many things you need to think about besides just do I need to buy a specific type of mutual fund? Um, do I need to buy a Roth IRA? Right, do I put the product in the Roth? Do I put it in a tax-deferred? Do I put it in just a taxable account? And that's where we kind of go over. We're going to talk about tax efficiency and how you invest, where you're thinking about taxes and the pots of money that you put the money in, you know, the, the investments into. We're going to talk about tax diversification because at some point, we're going to quit being accumulators and we're going to be decumulators and start taking that money out. So you need to think about that. And then we're going to kind of close out the show a few other items that, I, that I'd put on the list was talking about doing Roth versus traditional investing because a lot of you guys have said, hey, my 401k or my 403b gives me the choice to either do Roth contributions or I can do traditional pre-tax. So which one should I do? So I'm going to give you some guidance on that, walk you through some of the things we think about, even though this is a very specialized personal decision that you'll have to make. We can at least give you some generalized guidance. And then we're going to close out the show. I'm going to have to move because we've got a lot to cover here. The pitfall, the pitfalls of getting too creative. We get so many questions and calls. Either somebody's trying to pitch you something or you just are outsmarting yourself by trying to put, I don't know, make things too complicated. That's exactly right. And, and I'll get into the details in a minute. But, um, if you're just now joining the show, this is the Money Guy show. Maybe you've seen the video and you decided to go check out to see what all the noise was about. Yeah, the website is money-guy.com. By day, I'm actually a fee-only financial advisor on the south side of Atlanta and in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Bo Hansen, who's sitting across from me here. By the way, a lot of people giving feedback on the video, they liked, and I didn't even think about it in this term because I guess we deal with it on a day-to-day basis – when you watch the Money Guy video that's on the website, it also gives you a behind the scenes of what we do here. You'll be able to see the equipment we're using. You'll be able to see how we set it up because we have a time-lapse video of that. So some some things, if you just want to know what we look like to put the voice with the face, I, I think it's pretty good in that. Um Last update before we jump into the meat of, the, of everything is we've got, remember, we're doing a whole The Big Give campaign in 2014. and. Um, autism impacts my family pretty heavily, and I've decided that I want to use this platform to not only help you guys realize how great it is to be good financial stewards with your money and be tightwads and save for the future through that that deferred gratification, but I want to make the world a better place as well. So I've kind of decided to to kind of weave these two worlds together, and we've come up with the Tightwad Nation, and we've got some incredible t-shirts coming out. These things, I I can't wait. They're coming in on the 21st. I don't know when that means it's going to go live because we got to do some things behind the scenes to, to make it all go. Live, I know Gabe's done a lot of good work on that. But while we're in the preparation stages, if anybody out there—I don't care if you're A level, B level, C level, D level, even E level—if you're somebody who is in the public eye that we might recognize you, reach out to us. You can write me at Brian B R I A N at money-guy dot com or Bo B O at money-guy dot com, and just let us know that you listen to the show, or maybe you're close friends with somebody who's on that A B C D E list, cause we wanna, what we wanna do is find out who you are, or who your friend is, or your relationship is, and send out some free money guy swag. So this is not something where we're asking for free. It's just we wanna kind of make this t-shirt campaign for the autism, where 100%, not just what we sell, but also the cost of materials is going towards, um, the, these charities. So, Really appreciate you guys hanging in there as we intro that. But um, please reach out if you are one of these people we might recognize. We, we want to know you're out there. So let's jump right in. Bo, anything did I miss in the house cleaning? I guess social media. You can also go to money guy.com if you want to catch us on Twitter or Facebook, yep. something like that. Um, but let's get right into this. Okay. First, I did. Let's go with the basics on how do you hold your assets. the Two things. I mean, Bo, we did these show notes so quick because it just hit us so easily, I think, because it's what we do on a day-to-day basis. You
0: know, you listen to a lot of really successful investors or professional money managers, and they say that two things you really get to control uh, when you're an investor are your fees that you pay and the taxes that you pay. So often with investing, we focus on asset allocation, how do I spread out my assets, but I think it gets overlooked a lot Asset location. Where do I hold my assets? What's the best way to do that? And so that's one of the things we want to talk about today.
1: So that's what we're going to jump right in. And the first kind of, I guess, bullet point is tax efficiency. When I talk about tax efficiency, you have to look at your different baskets of holdings. You've got your taxable accounts. Your taxable account is like your individual account, your joint account. Um, you know,
0: trust accounts also follow. Trust accounts,
1: you know, anything that you're going to have to, if you make income on the holdings in that account, You'll have to report it to the IRS somewhere. So that's your taxable accounts. You also have your tax deferred accounts. Tax deferreds is what, these are usually big baskets of funds for most people because that's your 401ks, your 403bs, your simple IRAs, your SEP IRAs. It's all your retirement savings that you're doing through work or traditional IRAs. If you're contributing, maybe you don't have an employer offering you a plan. You can do a traditional IRA, take a tax deduction. That's also going to be considered tax-deferred. And when I say tax-deferred, just getting really nerdy with you, what that means is the government says, look, we'll make a deal with you because we know you need to be saving for the future. So we're going to give you a tax incentive, meaning we're going to let you take a deduction off your taxes right now when you make this contribution. We're going to even let that money grow for the future. But when you pull that money out after you're 59 and a half, we're going to take some, in- we're going to take income taxes on the whole thing. If, now, if you do have some after tax contributions in there, that gets added to the basis. There's a whole calculation. We're not going to get into that in the show, but know that with most tax deferred accounts, it means when you pull that money out in retirement, when you're in the deaccumulation stage, and you're actually dispersing it, you're going to pay income taxes at your ordinary income tax rate. There's not favorable tax rates on it either. It's not like capital gains or dividends. You're going to pay ordinary income tax rates. Um, the last, which is kind of a new – I say new, but maybe it's because I've been doing this a long time. It's the newest of all the categories is the tax-free. Now, when I, I say tax-free, some people think municipal bonds. And, and municipal bonds are tax free, but that's a little different. What I'm talking about, I'm talking about Roth assets. I'm talking when I talk about tax free basket of holdings. I'm typically talking about your Roth accounts because these things are great for retirement. They're great for estate planning. They are just the the full package. Right. Um, and because they're so good, there's usually a lot of restrictions on how you get that money in those accounts. And we'll kind of walk through that, but. Bo and I wanted to make sure we shared with you guys. When we're designing an investment plan for a brand new client or updating an existing client, we definitely look at the tax efi- tax efficiency. And we're going to kind of go through these, Bo, if you want to jump in, kind of talk about how we do that jigsaw puzzle, where we're figuring out where to put different asset classes of the asset allocation into these different holdings.
0: Yeah, so sure. So what we do is we kinda of look first the first thing we do is we never look at individual accounts by themselves. Whenever we design an asset allocation for a client, we look at their total basket of goods and we look at that one big portfolio as one big pizza pie. And then we decide how do we do asset allocation across that. Well then once we arrive at the appropriate asset allocation, that's when we get down to the individual account level. And so What we always talk about is, I'll start with tax-deferred, the kind of things you want to hold in a tax-deferred account, an IRA rollover, SEP, simple, 401k, you want to hold anything that generates ordinary income. So a lot of bond funds, maybe some alternative funds, dividend-paying stock funds, anything that's going to generate ordinary income for your portfolio, because that way it's just generating income over and over, getting reinvested, but you're not losing any of that income to taxes.
1: One caveat. Sure. Sometimes dividends, Mm -hmm. it really plays into your tax rate, too, because some people, low income, you want dividends probably in a taxable account, Um, whereas also if you're in a higher tax bracket, a lot of your dividends now are also going to be subject to the new Medicare surtaxes. So I just want to put that, like I said, everything we're talking about today is very individualized, but we're going to give you general advice but please know, we don't know your personal situation. We don't know your risk profile. We don't know how old you are. So a lot of this stuff gets fine-tuned in the actual design process. Right, exactly. Um, the the next
0: pot, once we got to do that, is we go look at the tax-free pot. So what does it make sense to hold in a Roth account? And Our general opinion is we want to hold highly appreciable holdings inside of a Roth account to really get the most bang for the buck in the Roth IRA. Because if you think about it, you put... in a Roth IRA, and you invest in mutual fund ABC, and it does very well, and that $5,000, when you get to retirement, is worth $50,000, you never, ever, ever have to pay tax on that $45,000 of income, which is or of growth, which is fantastic. So we want to hold things in those accounts like uh, domestic U.S. equities, growth funds, real estate, commodities, things that we see a lot of long-term high-growth potential in. Uh, and then the third pot is your taxable assets and where you what you want to hold in these sorts of accounts like your taxable accounts and trusts we'll talk about a little bit more in a second. You want to hold things that split us uh, that spit off anything that would qualify for either uh qualified dividends, you know, favorable capital gains and dividend rates, um uh, or things that may have the potential to have some losses in there because you can harvest losses in taxable accounts. You hope over the long term it's going to go up, but like a good S&P 500 fund is not a bad thing to hold in a taxable account because if you do have a down year, you can always sell, harvest those losses, find something very similar to invest in, in the next year. So it provides you with some tax planning opportunities.
1: Yeah, and I think you just nailed it because one of the, the only things that, when I, I'm talking about downside to the tax-free accounts, the Roth accounts, is that they are not deductible if you have losses. So that's why it is one of those things where, uh, you know, Definitely, you could put. I like the S and P and the taxable accounts to a degree because they're also very tax efficient. I mean, they'll they'll pay you two percent in dividends typically if you're doing and talking about an S and P type fund. Um, but that's it doesn't have a lot of turnover because it's an in index. So, but I think that's Bo. You nailed it right on the 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 on the nose. The thing that I, I do tell people: remember with the Roth IRAs, not everybody can do these things. You know, they do have income restrictions. I believe once you get around the 185, unfortunately, I don't keep up with these numbers as close as I used to because the last one I remember was like mid-150s to 160s. But fortunately, I have good associates who just passed the CFP exam. They keep all these records and all these numbers. You know, organized in their brain. And Gabe, you were sharing with me, I think the 2013 numbers for a married couple was if your income was between 178 to 188, they start phasing out your ability to do Roth IRA contributions. And in 2014, that number is actually because of they, they increase it for inflation is 181 to 191. So those are the numbers you kind of need to know. What if you can do Roth IRA contributions or not? So that's one of the things. That's why it's pretty cool when you have the opportunity to invest in those within your 401ks or your 403bs because you could make, um, you know, 190 thousand dollars a year and still have access to Roth assets investments just because there's no income limitations when you you're dealing with a, an ERISA qualified plan like a 401k or a 403b. So moving on, and I know we could go much deeper with that rabbit hole, but I think we have to keep going here just so this doesn't turn out to be a, a two-hour podcast with only our relatives and our closest friends listening to it. Um, but tax diversification, how often do we hear the word diversification? Usually we're talking about, hey, how much large cap stock do you own? How much bonds do you own? How much real estate, oil and commodities and cash? Those are all different asset classes that you diversify into. But there's also diversification for taxes. And the, and the reason we talk about this is because you have to take these things into consideration. Future tax rates. Right. In the future, tax rates will be different than they are now. Even though every time they pass a new tax bill, they say these are permanent tax cuts or these are permanent, you know, increases in taxes. Nothing in tax code is permanent. Except the fact they're going to take some taxes. Except that you're going to pay some taxes. I mean, that really is the truth. So you have to take into account what's going on with future tax rates. If I had to guess, based upon demographic trends and income and everything else, probably going up in the, in the long term. Um, future interest rates, we don't know. I mean, if I had to guess on that, I will tell you interest rates are likely to go up and in, in in definitely over the next five to seven years. It does crack me up. We were watching the, the news today. It, the 10-year just went below 2.5. So go figure. I mean, interest rates are the, the darndest thing while we have all these crazy policies going on right now. But this is why you needed to have tax diversification. Then lastly, and this is why I'll make my point, special tax policies. When I talk about future tax rates and then future special tax policies, the reason I'm talking about tax diversification is you want to have choices. When you retire, if you have three pots of money to choose from, you have taxable money, you have tax-deferred, and then tax-free. If you're if you're retiring in a time when, say, the stock market has really been beaten up, you might want to be able to go pull off some of those safer assets like bonds. So you probably go pull out of those tax-deferred accounts at that point because of just the performance. But also think about this: what if? What if the environment out there is that taxes just went up 10 to 15 maybe even 20% from where they were, and you have the ability now to plan and control your income based upon your withdrawals out of those tax-deferred accounts or maybe not taking those withdrawals and just pulling the money either out of your Roth accounts or your taxable accounts, you can totally skirt past and figure out how much you want to pay in taxes. So it gives you some flexibility if you're in a high-tax environment when you first retire, you can wait it out. You can go pull off of those assets that don't generate a lot of taxes for you and keep those taxes down.
0: Well, What we love about it, being planners, is that it really gives you options. You get to choose what you look like in retirement. We have clients that we work with who have very uh, healthy portfolios, and every year we max out the 15% bracket, even though their income might be something uh, much higher, not their income, but what they're living off of might be something much higher than the 15% bracket, because we can pick and choose which accounts to pull out of, we get to control the tax situation, and that's a fun, fun thing to be able to do, and that is just one part of what we consider true financial independence.
1: Yeah, and then you get to do really cool nerdy stuff like Roth conversions and other things and really work through the system to kind of figure out what's going on. Well, I think you're right on, and that probably leads to a great transition point to talking about some of these other items, because we've gone through the tax efficiency, we've gone through tax diversification, and I think this next title topic kind of ties right into it, because we get a lot of people asking us about Roth versus traditional 401k and 403b contributions.
0: I would say, Brian, we probably get this email maybe once every two weeks, maybe even even more often than that. People saying, "Hey, I make this much, or I'm in this situation, or I have this going on, but I don't know what to do. Do I do traditional? Do I do Roth?" So I think I think this is very pertinent for at least the listenership
1: that we have. And it, and I, I know it sounds like a broken record, but I feel like I have to keep giving this disclaimer. This is a very personalized issue because there's so many things. I'm going to give you. An alternative and actually a a kind of a something that falls outside of the advice I'm about to give you, but it just shows you how this can be sophisticated and you need to really put a lot of thought to it. Because when you're talking about should you do Roth 401k or 403b or traditional, you have to kind of talk about tax rates and then polish your crystal ball and try to figure out when you retire, are tax rates going to be lower than what you're currently paying in your current income state? And that's that's kind of the, the analysis. And so here's I tell you this because I want you to understand my train of thought when I give you this rule of thumb that I'm about to give you, is that if you ask me, are tax rates for retirees going to be lower or higher, I will tell you that because of what I've already shared in the show, I think because of the demographics, the debt that the country has, and some other things outside forces, tax rates will have to go up over time. But there is a caveat that I always say. We are a, a, a representative government where people get elected, and that's how we get bills, and that's where tax law is set. Do you know who's a protected class? Uh, I do. Voters, people who vote. And which group of people vote more than anybody else? That's our, our seasoned citizens. Our, our, the ones that are our, long in the tooth. Our senior citizens are usually your best voters. You can count that they're going to vote. They, they wait to vote. They're very active with the policies, and and that's the reason I think senior citizens will continue. I don't care which decade we're talking about, to probably get favored tax rates for their social security, for, you know, their retirement accounts. I'll give you an example. Here in the state of Georgia, it used to be your social security was not taxable to, to the state income taxes. Then they added a provision um the the $35,000 per individual of pension and IRA distributions were non-taxable now it's up to $65,000 so you so, can yeah. have $130,000 coming in plus social security I mean you got somebody who really pulling in 160 170 grand tax free under these new tax policies and that's because they want to encourage senior citizens to vote and then vote hopefully for the people that are going to keep these policies in place. So I tell you that because my rule of thumb is once the tax rates exceed twenty five percent, we get into that twenty eight percent bracket. I, that's kind of the switch point for me. So if I'm listening,
0: what what what's about the income that's, level? That's that that
1: around taxable income around one hundred fifty thousand. Now, when I say taxable, remember your gross income could be. 180, 190, close to 200 and you still might only have taxable income of 150 after yeah. you run through your exemptions, your your deductions and all those type of things. But um, but and but I think that's a good threshold for me when I'm giving advice to people is that if you having if your income gets to that point, you might want to go to the traditional 401k or 403b because you get the tax deduction now.
0: So is it an all or nothing though? So if I, you know, if my if my taxable income this year is one, you know, one hundred forty nine thousand, should I be doing all Roth? And then once it crosses over one hundred fifty thousand,
1: I should do all pre tax? It's, you know, it, we talked about it when we were doing the the show planning. Is that you know it could be an all or nothing, or it could be a kind of a compromise where if you had somebody who was only you know ten thousand dollars over. 150 on the taxable when they did a tax projection on themselves. They could be really, you know, smart and do 10,000 in the traditional and then do 7,500 into the Roth and kind of split it because you can typically choose to do both. You can, it doesn't have to be an all or nothing. You can split it. But then there's also, you brought up a great point. We have a client who's in his sixties, who has a seven figure tax deferred portfolio, who's now, even though his income exceeds that that 25% bracket, he is doing pretty much everything into the Roth from an estate planning standpoint. He has so many assets in the tax deferred that he just knows he's going to hit that minimum required distribution age at 70 and a half, and I have to start pulling that money out, that he's using it as a, as an estate planning tool to load up the Roth savings at his employer. And I think that makes sense. So that's why I tell you I can give you generalized advice but really, this all comes down to your specific situation. So please take it take into account some of these variables that we're sharing with you. Um, I want to shift gears again, Bo, and talk about the pitfalls of getting too creative. Because when we were brainstorming, man, these things we could we could have done a whole another show yeah. on just that. That's it. Not even a bad title. The pitfalls of getting too creative. I think. Um, so we're gonna have to go through these pretty quick. I thought one one that I see a lot. And, and we kind of came back and put this one in is don't put annuities inside IRAs. My, my, my reason for stating that is, is that one of the reasons people will talk to you about annuities is they'll say if you're maxed out all your tax benefits, you know, your, your 401K, your 403B, you've maxed out putting money in a traditional IRA and you're still looking for a way to grow your assets tax deferred, some people consider going to annuities because right. they are structured um, in a way where they also grow tax deferred. So if they're structured to go tax deferred, IRAs just by default are tax deferred. Why would you put an annuity within an IRA? I mean, you're, you're because gonna, what happens when you put assets into an annuity? what I the the problem is you're paying for something you're getting no benefit out of because all annuities have they they are, they are insurance based products. So they have typically like a mortality expense. Or an, uh, or an underwriting fee, or there, there are fees and costs associated with annuities that you don't need to be paying for inside of an IRA because they're already growing tax-deferred anyway, so why strap yourself for those additional fees when you don't have to? Um, another one, we get this question a lot, is real estate and bu- business entities. And I'm not going to go too deep because I don't want to take away from your your attorney's um, but I always tell people, as, as well as your CPAs, is be careful when you're putting real property, real estate, into business structures. Um, and, and realize some of this is different by state and where you are, too. But I know here in Georgia, there is no problem with putting real estate like in an LLC. Because if, you know, all, you know, businesses are like marriages. is that Some of them don't end up going well and there's always the possibility that you're going to have to dissolve or unwind the business. With an LLC, it doesn't require you to sell the property to kind of unwind it. You can, y'all can all divvy up the property. Maybe you have five houses, five partners. So you each get a rental house and then y'all go your merry way. It could be that simple. The problem is when you start putting them in corporate structures, it's a mess. Sometimes to dissolve or unwind, you might have to actually create a taxable transaction and sell the property. It's just, it's way too deep to go in the show, but I just tell you, be careful of getting too creative on how you structure your, your transactions, especially with dealing with, you know, real estate. And, and putting real estate into a corporate type structure, make sure you talk to somebody and you know what you're doing before you get yourself in an, uh-oh, what did I do situation in the future.
0: Speaking of putting real estate in, I think one of the things we had talked about, Brian, was a lot of people write us and say, hey, I, want, I found this house, right? It's got foreclosed, short sale. I want to buy it inside of my Roth IRA. Because it's going to, this house is going to double and triple and quadruple in value,
1: and that's going to be tax free forever. Right. We get, we, you know, we're not getting as many of those calls now, but when the market definitely bottomed out. And I will tell you, I'm not poo pooing the idea because I will tell you, I have a neighbor who's doing incredibly well putting real estate within retirement assets. But I just want to tell you that holding unconventional assets in retirement accounts do have drawbacks. And that's what I want to just draw your attention to the to the things you need to think about. That way you don't get sold a bill of goods, and then you get a, a, one of those uh-oh moments after you're already through the process. And so when you put real estate, and it doesn't have to just be real estate. It can also be private holdings, and we'll get into that, but let's focus on the real estate first. You typically have to find somebody, because remember, all retirement products, because they get that preferential tax treatment, they're almost like mini-trusts. So you have to find somebody that can be the custodian or the administrator to hold your assets. Well, that's not hard to do when you're talking about exchange traded funds, stocks, bonds or mutual funds. You know, it's very easy to find a custodian for those. So the cost because the market has so many custodians that are doing that in such a competitive marketplace, the cost is very low. So it's easy to do that and that's also a very liquid Marketplace. So it's easy to, to, to pay the fees and make it all flow. But when you're holding unconventional assets within a retirement account, the administration fees can become kind of a burden. Right. Um, the other thing, and Bo, you were kind of alluding to this is that we see people when they, when they, they don't understand, say you had a hundred thousand dollars in a retirement account and you decide you're going to go buy this piece of foreclosed property that you're going to turn into a rental property for ninety thousand dollars. Um, you go and you buy this and you find a custodian and administrator, uh, that, that will structure the deal for you, let you, you know, kind of be the go-between that will handle the closing and pay for the assets out of your retirement account. Y'all come to an agreement on that, but then you get to the house and the house requires $15,000 worth of repairs or even $20,000 worth of repairs. You could, you, you have, you know, five to $10,000 left over after the closing costs within your IRA. But you have twenty thousand dollars of expenses. You can't. You get into a really murky area there because it's not like how are you go pay for those repairs. Uh-huh. What what if your income is too high? I mean, if this is not a
0: Roth, I what if your income is too high to contribute to a yeah, Roth? You
1: can't go put those. Con- you know, because remember a contribution. You know, in a, whether it's traditional Roth, fifty five hundred, unless you're over fifty. If the cost of the repairs were more, you'd be in trouble. Also, what happens when the renter moves out? You're you're without a renter for five to six months. You've already depleted your cash reserves that you had in the retirement account, but you've got to keep making the mortgage payment. Where does that money come from? And see you you see how it gets really murky really quick. And that's why you just have to be careful. I'm not saying it's a horrible idea. It's just that I know you know I I like keeping things simple. One of my most popular shows that we ever did was called Bringing Simple Back. It was right after the collapse of 2008, where I think a lot of people were licking their wounds and going, what did I do wrong? And I think the big thing is, is don't let somebody sell you something super complicated when truthfully financial independence comes very simply. If you save well, if you're saving 15 to 20% of your money for the future, and you're putting it in, you know, you're taking advantage of all the tax benefits that you can within, you know, your Roth IRAs, your 401ks at work. You don't have to get into some of these what I call head-spinning type investments, where if they're so complicated that you have to go, I don't know, take a night course, right, to figure out what you're doing. You, you might be, you know, outthinking yourself or outsmarting yourself. So, um, and I've talked about real estate, private bank holdings, and things like that. We have people back, you know, you don't see it as much anymore. But back when the bank boom was going on, it wasn't uncommon. For every, you know, five people to get, get together in a room, they decide they want to open a bank together. And a lot of people were funding these founding shares with their bank accounts. And once again, it was the same thing. I mean, with their retirement accounts and the same thing. You know, you have to pay somebody to hold those private shares. And then you also have to pay an administration fee each year. It just gets to be more complicated sometimes. And then if you have capital calls, I mean, it's just it's just complicated. We'll leave it at that. Um Moving on, a lot of people think they need trust. And and trusts are great. Believe me, we even we do recommend trust to clients and we even help them administer those trusts when we're figuring out things and talking to their CPAs and, and helping them figure out the right tax forms and so forth. But remember, when when somebody pitches you these big complex estate plans with all these trusts and so forth, The tax rates, if you're treating as a complex trust, meaning that it's going to pay its own taxes, a simple trust is a flow-through entity, meaning that you're just going to get a K-1, it goes on your individual taxes. But if you're dealing with a complex trust structure, um, the tax rates in trust move up much quicker than they do for you as an individual. And then sometimes, you know, also remember, depending on whether it's revocable, irrevocable, a lot of those, when you structure an irrevocable trust, you pass that money out. You're not getting it back. I mean, that's the whole irrevocable. You don't get to pull the strings and bring it back to you. It's gone. And So just think long and hard about trust. And then I'll close it out kind of the the, the whole, What I, I think a lot of financial advisors stress is the sexy stuff. Because this is really the, the sizzle that they put into their practices. And, and I can speak from experience. The last firm I worked at, we did a lot of these. And they're not bad. I will tell you that this is just kind of like the real estate within IRAs. I can't tell you they're bad because there are opportunities to make a lot of money, potentially. But it's just you have to know the downside to it and know really what you're getting into because sometimes they don't share that stuff when you're getting pitched this stuff. And I'm talking about the offshore investing as well as private placements. Now, realize when we're getting into this sizzle sexy stuff, you'll start seeing the word accredited investor a lot. And Gabe was sharing with me before. You have to go one, two, three when you're talking about accredited investors. The one is you have to have a net worth of $1 million excluding your real estate. Two is $200,000 of income if you're a single individual, $300,000 of income if you're married, And that has to be for the last two years and expected to continue for the future. So that's accredited investor. So this is what it means when you hear the word accredited investor is the government's basically slapping their hands together, washing them clean, saying, you have enough money that good luck, buyer beware, but we feel like you have enough assets and money that we're not going to give you the same protections we typically give out there Um Because you, you, you just go do it on your own. So this, it's, it's really not as transparent, but we were talking about that. Mm -hmm. Um, but also when you're talking about private placements and we used to do a lot of them that actually had great returns. But what I don't like, and let me tell you, the bad side is, is they're illiquid. You are essentially married to these assets for, it could be as long as seven, 10, however long. I mean, talk to people who bought, um some of these limited partnerships back in the 80s, they're still getting K-1s from right. them. They bought these things for these great tax benefits back in the 80s. The government changes the rules um, by which, you know, all things, because remember, nothing that they tell you is permanent in tax code. It can be changed with a vote so quickly that your head will spin. Meanwhile, you're stuck with this entity that you bought back in the 80s, still filing, you having to hire a CPA because it, you've got these complicated K-1s coming through with, with different type of income sources. Or losses for it really gets crazy. So I tell you that be careful with the private placements. Um, understand they're very illiquid. They can be great, but we've we've seen a lot of people recently. They got sold a bill of goods. I don't know back before the market collapse right. in two thousand six seven. And these people, I don't even know how they passed the accredited investor. Right. I don't. They don't strike me as typical accredited investor. So these things got pretty lax at some point and you know we were trying to figure out like this one person that we're talking to we have three different valuations we can't figure out what the stuff's worth right because it's up to the provider of the private placement it's not like there's a market I can go pull a ticker and go figure out what this value is worth we we have to trust that the person that's administering this thing is being honest and we have three different valuations all within about four months of each other. And they're, they're big. I'm not talking about this is just fluctuations in the, in, you know, what's going on, the daily pricing of something. It, we can't figure it out. Yeah. And that, that's the problem with the lack of, lack of transparency when you deal with these products. Doesn't mean they're bad. It just means I want you to know what you're getting into. And then last, cause we get asked this a lot. And I think a lot of people, cause there's a lot of people that are worried, you know, we're at end of times or, Maybe you know America is not what it was a hundred years ago. I hear these things, and you hear people talking about doing offshore investing. Once again, there's nothing wrong if you're structuring to do offshore type investments. But I will tell you, I wouldn't consider doing it unless I had over ten million dollars of liquid assets. because um, I just there's a lot of to do it right because remember, when I'm talking about offshore investing, I'm talking about as a diversifier, meaning that you instead of having your assets all in one country, custody of one country you're trying to go you're still trying to do it on the legal side I'm not one of those people who wants to do it in the gray side where they're trying to skirt some rules right you see those lawsuits and you see those grace periods come in where the government says hey if you got stole you know put in this bad bill of goods if you come forward now, We'll, we'll only charge you the taxes. We won't charge you the penalties, and we won't send you to jail. It cracks me up when you see these things that have come out of a corporate America. That's not what I'm talking about, but you do have to be careful. There are people out there selling those structures, too, uh-huh. and I think those are the type of people that you can be a victim. Maybe you have a million dollars. Maybe you have $2 million, and somebody starts pitching you these complicated structures. Um, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble really quick because I can – I can bet that you have not gone and read what the tax code is. Do we have tax treaties? What Am I breaking the law on the way I'm re- reporting this? There are a lot of curveballs that you have to be very c- careful with. So don't let somebody sell you something because it's got some sizzle in it. It seems like it's a sexy product when it might be more sophisticated, more complex than what you really require. Um You know, so maybe five million is when you tell me you want to go look at it. I'm not going to tell you you're wrong on that. I'm just telling you, me personally, I'm not looking at that until my liquid assets are over ten million dollars, and I'm not looking at it then as a way to cheat the government. I'd look at it as a way as just diversifying, just like we talk about asset allocation diversification. We talk about tax diversification. We would then have, I think, once you have that level of assets, there's nothing wrong with having some some geographic, yeah, some geographic or country diversification, just in case. The end of times geopolitical stuff got to be really bad. But uh, truthfully, y'all have seen my, my message on YouTube on gold and other things. If you really are one of those doomsday people and you think things are going that bad, you'd be much better served probably loading up with a seed bank or ammo than you do doing some of this crazy stuff. Don't let somebody scare you. Those, the end of times, I mean, it, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to put too much attention to it, but I think you just have to, I have too much faith in human nature, and innovation, because there's so many good things going on in the world. I mean, uh, maybe it's because I just finished reading the Steve Jobs biography. It's amazing to see the evolution from iPods to iPhones to iPads all within really an eight. I mean, you think about from 1997 when Steve Jobs came back to Apple all the way through 2011, you know, is when unfortunately, you know, Steve passed away. That's not that long of a time and we had tremendous innovation. So I think that's not stopping. I mean, you look at all the things that are going on. I mean, uh, Bo, you, you and I have been on an, I've been on an audible tear here recently yep. where I've listened to a lot of audio books. It's just amazing how technology has made it where the world is such a smaller place. I mean, look at us working with clients in over half the country yep. now. That's all technology. That's all innovation. I'm an optimist. So don't let somebody scare you into doing something more sophisticated, more complicated than you need to. Um, once again, kind of closing things out here. Go to money Check out the video. Feel free to leave us some feedback on it. Also, remember, you got any you know relatives, uh, neighbors, or even business associates that are A, B, C, D, E-level celebrities, we might just recognize them, let us know who they are, and we'll send you some swag, or send them swag, because we're trying to get the word out about this this the big give with the Tightwad Nation. You're going to love these shirts when they come out, and you're going to be really impressed that we didn't skimp on the quality. So check us out, money-guy.com. I'm your host, Brian Preston. I'll be back in two weeks.
0: The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston, and Brian Preston is a partner with Preston & Cleveland Wealth Management.